Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. The use and possession of marijuana is illegal under federal law in this country. But in recent years, as we all know, a growing number of states have legalized the drug for medical or recreational purposes. Iowa shares the Midwest with several states now that have recreational sale and use of cannabis, including Michigan, Illinois, and Missouri. Nationwide, 21 states and the District of Columbia have legalized small amounts of marijuana for adult recreational use as of April 2023. The changing legal landscape has coincided with a dramatic increase in public support for the legalization of marijuana, which a majority of Americans now favor. This portion of the program, we want to find out the latest science on the health benefits of cannabis, but also potential risks and what is not known. Dr. Kevin Hill joins us. He's director of addiction psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, also associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hill, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ben. Listeners, you are invited to join us with your questions uh, for Dr. Hill about the benefits, uh, potential risks of cannabis. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Dr. Hill, in quick fashion, I wonder if you can start by telling us a little bit more about your background and your expertise, especially in the, the study of cannabis. Sure. So I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and I direct the Division of Addiction Psychiatry at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, one of the Harvard hospitals. And I've been doing research in this area as well uh, for a number of years. In the early years, looking at medications that would be used to treat that subset of individuals who are addicted to cannabis, and more recently looking at the quality of the evidence for today's topic. So how much evidence is there for using cannabis and cannabinoids therapeutically for medical purposes? And conversely, what are the risks of doing so? So um, when you think about who you hear about cannabis from, I think it's important to think about what their roles are. So I treat patients and I've been doing research for a number of years in this area. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your areas in, in treatment um, before um, expanding on, on some of the things you just mentioned. Uh, you see a wide variety of patients, I understand, uh, issues that somehow relate to cannabis, both those who have uh, a problem with cannabis, perhaps addiction, and but also those who are seeking a benefit from cannabis? That's true, Ben. So uh, we have a cannabis and cannabinoid clinic here at our hospital. So in one hour, I might be sitting down with, let's say, a 20-year-old person who's using cannabis multiple times a day, and they're having difficulty with their university studies. And then the next hour, I might be sitting with somebody who's, let's say, in their 60s, and they have chronic low back pain, and they have worked with their treatment team to try multiple medications and often injections to treat their pain with limited results. And they're interested in thinking about either using whole plant cannabis or prescribed cannabinoids to treat that pain. So we do both. And I think that's important to point out that 
this is a very polarizing topic. And a lot of times people are eitherly, either entirely against cannabis or they're strongly proponents of it. And sometimes both of those groups tend to overlook the evidence and sort of cherry pick data that fits their narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's dig into the benefits, first of all, before the risks, um, what data there is, uh, solid scientific data as to the benefits, um, and in, in what areas, in what conditions? Sure. So, so there are currently three FDA-approved cannabinoids that are available by prescription. And so those are dronabinol uh, or marinol that people may have heard of before. It's pure THC. Nabilone is a cannabinoid that is similar in some ways to cannabis. And then finally, cannabidiol or CBD has been a topic of interest for the past handful of years. And that was FDA approved in 2018. So those three cannabinoids are FDA approved for number one, nausea and vomiting associated with cancer chemotherapy. The first two that I mentioned, uh, appetite stimulation and certain wasting conditions like HIV. And then finally, CBD is FDA approved for a handful of seizure disorders, Lennox-Gastaut, uh, Dravet syndrome, and then seizures associated with tubular sclerosis. So there are a handful of conditions that have FDA approvals. Beyond those conditions, probably the best data is for chronic pain and then neuropathic pain, which is a sort of burning sensation that people get in people's nerves. And then finally, spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. So it's important to point out there is some evidence for therapeutic use of cannabis and cannabinoids in a handful of areas, but the amount and the scope of use of cannabis and cannabinoids by the general public far, far outpaces that evidence. Mm -hmm. so, so what are your biggest questions, scientific questions yet to be answered that concern the benefits? Well, I think one major question, Ben, that is yet to be answered satisfactorily is whether or not cannabis or CBD or other cannabinoids. So keep in mind that the cannabis plant has hundreds of compounds and cannabinoids are, are compounds that are specific to the cannabis plant. There are over 140 of those that can be isolated from the cannabis plant. But a basic question is, uh, can those cannabinoids treat pain effectively? We've got millions of Americans who are using either whole plant cannabis or isolated cannabinoids for pain. And while there is some evidence, the data is not strong and it really needs to be improved. And I think one of the more frustrating pieces of this debate is that we really are not moving the evidence forward at the rate and scale that we should be. Mm -hmm. And what, are there obstacles to research? What are those? There, there are obstacles, Ben. So I think that a lot of people point to the scheduling of cannabis as a Schedule One substance, according to the DEA. And that means that it has, number one, addictive potential, which cannabis does. And then number two, no legitimate medical purposes. I don't think we can really make that case. So the scheduling is a problem. It is a barrier. But I don't think it's the biggest barrier. I think the biggest barrier towards research for cannabis and other cannabinoids is lack of funding. So there are a lot of stakeholders in this space, states like Iowa, states like my state, Massachusetts, and companies 
that are profiting from cannabis, either by taxation or sales or a combination of the two. And those entities oftentimes are not contributing to the science in the way that I believe they should. Mm -hmm. and, and at the base of that, um, that controversy over scheduling and a lack of funding, is that a, a cultural political difference there that you see uh, making this gulf? Uh, to, to some degree, I think the biggest problem, though, Ben, is that if you are a company that is doing very, very well selling cannabis-related products, why would you want to invest millions of dollars in research that probably could only hurt or, or is very likely to hurt your sales? So I think that unless states like Massachusetts and Iowa are mandated or unless companies that are profiting in this space are mandated to contribute a certain portion of their profits towards the science, I, I don't think we're going to move forward in a meaningful way. And I think that's unfortunate. I believe that the United States should really be trailblazers in this area. And unfortunately, to this point, we, ha we have not been. Mm -hmm. You can join our conversation, Dr. Kevin Hill, with us for this portion of the program, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, one of the hospitals associated with Harvard Medical School, where he's an associate professor of psychiatry. 1-866-780-9100. Your questions about the benefits, uh, risks of cannabis use, 1-866-780-9100, or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Let's go to Robert uh, joining us uh, from somewhere in southern Iowa. Robert, welcome to the program. You have a question for Dr. Hill. Well, a question, but more just some, some personal experience, you know, having, having had experience with cannabis across the broad spectrum as a younger adult coming from, a, you know, a lower income area and, and using it quite heavily um, and also, you know, getting getting mixed up with the wrong people and, and using what I'd consider to be really illicit drugs, right? Particularly we'll say methamphetamine um, and even alcohol. Um, having, having gone from that world and, and using marijuana to, to using marijuana to transition off of those drugs, right? Um, and, and eventually building myself a successful career, getting out of that, that lower income situation and finding myself in a scenario now working for a, a reputable company that, that strongly frowns on marijuana, but socially accepts alcohol. Um, and they struggle to see that contrast of, of just how damaging alcohol can be, especially when it's socially acceptable. Um, I just want to bring that experience that, that I've seen where it depends on how you use it, right? You can abuse anything. You can overdo sugar, food, um, you know, a lot of things. And I think a, a big piece of this mm -hmm. is, is, engaging in a conversation with reputable employers um, to, to, you know, look at them side by side okay. and, and hopefully we're, things right. get more socially accepted. Robert, we're coming up on a break. Sorry to cut you off. I wanted a minute or so to, to leave to before the break. Uh, he'll be with us afterwards. Dr. Hill, uh, in the minute before the break, your response to that sort of Robert's testimonial. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad to hear Robert's had a good experience and is, is successful now. And I think he raises some good points. Uh, certainly, alcohol is as dangerous as ever. And I think it's important to point out that it really doesn't need to be a choice between one or the other. Both, uh, unless there are certain 
uh, circumstances that we talked about before, unless you have certain seizure disorders, et cetera, uh, both of these substances are, are not going to be helpful for you and they're going to be harmful. But I think it's important to point out that uh, only a subset of users of either substance are going to have problems. But I think Ro uh, Robert mentioned that you can take your use of either alcohol or cannabis to a very dangerous level and it can impact key spheres of your life, like work, school, and relationships. Okay. When we come back, more from Dr. Kevin Hill, uh, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, talking about the benefits and risks of cannabis. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. This portion of the program live with Dr. Kevin Hill uh, of Harvard Medical School, an addiction uh, specialist. Plenty of questions from our listeners for you to answer. Uh, a, a comment from Joy in Sioux City. Uh, she says, uh, please remind people that the marijuana of 20 years ago is not what the marijuana is today in terms of potency and means of delivery. Perhaps you can couple that answer, comment on that with what we wanted to, to get to, the risks uh, as underpinned by scientific uh, data as of now, the main risks of cannabis use, Dr. Hill? Yeah, happy to do that, Ben. So uh, as Joy mentioned, the potency of cannabis has skyrocketed in the last couple of decades. So in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, average THC, so the primary active ingredient in cannabis, uh, THC content in those decades was about 3 to 4%. Now, the published data indicates that average THC content is around 20%. And so we can easily go into a dispensary or other cannabis store and buy flower uh, cannabis in the 20s or 30s. So it, it is important to point out that a lot of the risks, and we'll talk about those in just a second, are dose dependent. So the potency really raises the prospects for adverse effects from cannabis use. And so when we talk about problems associated with cannabis use, there are acute problems. So things that may happen if you use cannabis today, and there are chronic problems as well. Acute problems, it can impair your judgment. It can contribute to you being in predicaments that you wouldn't otherwise get into. It can impair your coordination and motor skills, which are important with such tasks as driving. So that's critical. Uh, and you certainly can have either short-term memory loss or a transient psychosis. Uh, in terms of chronic effects, those, those are the effects that we're probably more familiar with. There's some data that indicates that if you start using cannabis regularly at a young age, it can impact your cognitive development because your brain is developing into your mid-20s. So some data looking at uh, IQ decline. You can lose up to eight points of IQ over a few decades if you're using cannabis early and often. 
Um, and then there are cannabis impacts upon other psychiatric conditions. So it can worsen anxiety, it can worsen depression, it can make you more likely to be suicidal. And then finally, for those folks that have a family history of a psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder with psychotic features, cannabis use, and again, we're talking about regular cannabis use, so significant amounts of use, can dramatically increase the likelihood that those genes will be expressed. So it's critical to point out to certain groups who are considering the use of cannabis, what the risks are. And that's really what my work has been about. We want to provide informed consent. So it doesn't mean that adults can't decide to use cannabis, but we want them to understand what the risks are. And data indicates that we have not done a good job in the United States of educating either young people or older folks about the risks of cannabis, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Here's a listener with an experience that uh, couples with, I think this would fall under chronic use, uh, who has a uh, listener who has used cannabis daily throughout the day for some time uh, in his uh, quote or her quote, uh, like some people drink coffee for several years is the way it was described. And then it was very positive for several years, then became very negative. Uh, the listener wants to know, and that caused this person to stop completely. How can it be a positive, blissful experience one week for years and then a very negative anxiety-inducing experience uh, on uh, the next uh, week, I, I understand here? So the euphoria that cannabis and other substances bring uh, is very pleasant, obviously. So if you are under the influence of cannabis or alcohol or some other substances, you're not going to be concerned about the things that are stressing you out. So it may not necessarily take away those stressors, but it might take you away from those stressors for a limited period of time. Unfortunately, you can't be high all the time. Some people try, uh, but once you know you come down from your cannabis use, you still have the same issues that were plaguing you. In fact, it can, as I mentioned earlier, can exacerbate anxiety. So using cannabis as a long-term treatment strategy for a variety of psychiatric conditions like anxiety is just not a smart thing. And so I hear stories like the one you mentioned very often that people turn to it in order to treat a given problem. And there may be some short-term perceived success, but ultimately folks come to realize that it's really not helping them in the way that they had hoped. They're not being successful in their job or in their relationship. And that's part of the challenge with this is that it takes a long time. It's very hard for people to come to the realization that this substance that a lot of people are saying is not addictive. A lot of people are saying it's great to treat a whole host of medical conditions. It's hard for people to come to the realization that this substance is actually hurting them in a significant way, and that makes it hard for them to seek treatment. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hill, what is known about the range of ways people experience cannabis? Um, some people get high very easily. Others have a high tolerance uh, for a lot of THC uh, uh, and don't uh, feel much at all. Is that comparable to alcohol in, 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 in developing a high tolerance, or is it different? What do we know there? 
Yeah, no. So Ben, I think you make a good point that individual experiences with a variety of substance vary quite a bit. So any given user of cannabis is going to have a variety of characteristics about themselves that are going to affect how they experience that substance, cannabis in this case. So have they used it before? What is their body type? Are they a person with co-occurring psychiatric disorders, et cetera? What, what is their health like on that given day? Are they well hydrated? Have they uh, not had any food to eat today? So those types of things are very similar to alcohol in that way. And I think that we know more about alcohol or people are more comfortable thinking about how alcohol may impact us. But absolutely, somebody's experience or other characteristics about them are going to definitely impact how they're going to experience cannabis. Mm -hmm. What makes the difference if a person says, okay, one person says it's very relaxing to me. It puts me in a great space. Another person is, uh, it makes them very anxious, uh, paranoid. Uh, Yeah, that's a a great point. I, I think a lot of that has to do with your genetic makeup. So when we're, when I'm sitting with a young person or if I'm at a school and speaking to hundreds of uh, high school students, I think that's one of the points that we have to make. There are different levels of risk for different individuals. If you have a family history of a psychiatric condition like anxiety, then you are more likely to have problems when using cannabis. If you, as I mentioned a second ago, if you have a family history of a psychotic disorder, then you're more likely to express that if you're using cannabis. So one of the things that often comes up in the room when talking with a patient who has been sent to me or has come on their own accord to try to change their cannabis use is that by virtue of them being with me the risks are probably outweighing the benefits. And that's hard for a young person who may be 20 and in uh, college to understand that, hey, look, my peers are able to go out on a Saturday and do whatever they want, and they're going to be fine, and they're going to go about their business the next day. Whereas they, because of their family history or their personal uh, co-occurring disorders, may be at a higher level of risk. And so therefore, the choices that we make are individual. And again, getting back to providing people the best information, we want people to understand if they're at a higher risk, you know, what they may be inviting should they decide to use cannabis regularly. And again, I want to point out that the problems that we talk about mostly are related to people who are using near daily multiple times a day. So the effects of cannabis are almost always dose dependent. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kevin Hill with us. If you've just joined us, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, associated with uh, Harvard Medical School, where he's Associate Professor of Psychiatry. Um, From our listener, another question. Will Dr. Hill please speak to what we know about hemp-infused drinks that are flooding social media? I am a certified prevention specialist, this person writes, and I'm concerned that hemp deltas are entering the market with no research data and that they will follow the model of the vaping industry. Uh, This person goes on. uh, These appear to be a use-at-your-own-risk products with no accountability by those who may benefit from dependency on the THC found in full-spectrum hemp oil. I believe these industries are taking advantage of the loop 
uh, the loophole in the Farm Bill of 2018. Uh, that's from our listener, <laughs> Dr. Hill. Well, I think I think the listener raises a lot of important points. So unfortunately, once you go outside of the FDA, the regulation of these products varies quite a bit. And so cannabis that is grown in a given state and sold through state-sponsored uh, dispensaries theoretically should be tested. Um, but beyond that, products that are available uh, commercially, the data are quite clear. There are numerous studies that continue to come out that show, uh, you know, we talked about the hemp infused drinks. There are myriad CBD products available. So the regulation, the purity and potency of those types of products varies widely. And a lot of times you don't really know what you're getting. Is it really the product that uh, is on the label? Are the amounts what they really say they are? And I think, unfortunately, uh, the way that the laws are moving creates these opportunities where there are a lot of unregulated products. And that opens up just a, an additional layer of risk. Also, keep in mind that as we are using other forms of cannabis, whether they be edibles or drinks or concentrates uh, or you know using vape pens, they have their own characteristics in certain um, kinetics or ways that the body processes these substances. And that really underscores one of the points I made earlier is that we haven't done a great job of educating people about these products, and we need to do a lot better uh, than we have done. We have done a good job in educating people about alcohol and nicotine, so we have the capability to do it, but because of a variety of reasons, including the number of people that are profiting from these cannabis and hemp products, along with the polarizing nature of this debate, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a huge gap here and we haven't, we need to fill that gap with solid education and science that's done in a sensible way. So uh, there's a, there's a long way to go in that area, unfortunately. Yeah. About five minutes left uh, with Dr. Kevin Hill of uh, Harvard Medical School. Let's go to Megan in Cedar Rapids. Megan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for, for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, I had a quick, I was hoping to maybe talk a little bit more about the connection uh, with opioids, because we're talking about marijuana and alcohol and um, nicotine, which alcohol and nicotine, we know, don't have any, like, beneficial value. So I'm wondering, like, how that conversation relates in terms of, like, prescription medication and those advantages um, of marijuana. Yeah, and, and of course, currently experiencing, have for many years, an opioid epidemic that costs um, something like 100,000 or more lives per year here in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Hill. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point that Megan makes. Um, I think there are key things that we need to think about. So in terms of treating chronic pain, there is very poor evidence supporting the use of opioids as medications for chronic pain. So that's important to point out. A lot of people have been started on these medications and develop addictions, and uh, some of those folks go on to use other opioids like fentanyl. So that's a, a very dangerous scenario, certainly. Cannabinoids like cannabis, I would say there is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a little bit of evidence suggesting that they may have some value as probably third-line treatments 
for pain. There is a body of research that looks at whether or not cannabis policies, having cannabis policies for medical or recreational cannabis, whether that makes a dent in the opioid epidemic. Uh, the data are mixed in, in that regard. But I, but I would say that if somebody is addicted to opioids, whether prescription opioids or street opioids, and they feel like cannabis is helpful for them or, or contributes to them using fewer opioids in some way, that's something that we have to consider. I will also say, importantly, that there are some places in the United States where doctors are using cannabinoids to treat opioid use disorder. And I think that's a dangerous proposition because we have very good medications to treat opioid use disorder. So I, I'm, I'm not advocating for that. Mm -hmm. Let's squeeze in one more caller. Uh, Julie, uh, welcome to the program. Have to ask, ask you to make it quick. Julie, what's on your mind? Sure. Um, I, I recently was reading up on after a discussion about um, concern that frequent marijuana use in young people can cause them to express the genes, as the doctor described, um, that can increase potential to um, cause or, 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 or make schizophrenia to the surface and other psychotic disorders. And I think that's really important, but I did research as much as I could on, on the Internet and wasn't able to find conclusive studies on that. Kids these days need to know that, but they are also Internet capable, and they need to know where to find that research because they're not going to take my word for it or his and okay. it would be really helpful if you would discuss where they can find that research because they need to know. Well, we'll do that right now in the closing minutes. Dr. Hill. So one place you can look for, for that evidence, uh, we published a paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry that um, came out at the tail end of 2021. And in that paper, we looked at the effects of cannabis and cannabinoids on other psychiatric conditions, and we go into great detail. Uh, there, there is a, a extensive body of evidence, population-level studies, that show that strong association. So I'm not saying that cannabis use causes schizophrenia, but there are a number of very large studies that do show uh, a significantly increased level of risk for people who have a family history of those conditions if they're using cannabis. Okay. Thank you very much. We've run out of time. It's uh, been very insightful. Dr. Kevin Hill, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Thank you for fielding the, all the questions, Dr. Hill. Uh, take care. And I think uh, we should leave uh, with um, uh, this national helpline uh, for those with substance use or mental health disorders, 800-662-HELP or visit findtreatment.gov. Uh, Dr. Kevin Miller, Dr. Kevin Hill, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ben. And we'll be back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network.
Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. The Atlantic hurricane season, with its 18 named storms, has already been above average. The number of storms usually begins to drop off quickly toward the end of October, dies out completely by the time the season ends on November 30th. However, experts are saying that extremely high sea surface temperatures across the Atlantic could mean more storms developing later in the season. That's why we thought it would be a good time to listen back to a conversation from back in May with Iowa State University's Christina Patricola. She studies tropical cyclones. Patricola is an assistant professor of geological and atmospheric sciences. She's also an affiliate of the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California. Let's listen back to that conversation on this program from May of this year. To avoid confusion from the start here, Christina, because you study tropical cyclones, we're talking about hurricanes, and then we have this other word, typhoons. (laughs) Tell us, what is the difference between a hurricane, a cyclone, and a typhoon? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, Tropical cyclones uh, refers to the most general way that we can uh, talk about these storms, Uh, whereas a hurricane is essentially um, a stronger tropical cyclone, and specifically one that happens in the Atlantic Basin. Uh, A typhoon is a tropical cyclone that occurs in the West Pacific Basin. All right. Tell us more about your specific area of research and the team you work with. Yeah, so my research focuses on understanding how natural climate variability, as well as anthropogenic climate change, can influence the statistics of tropical cyclones. And uh, we use both observations and numerical climate models to try to understand this problem. Mm -hmm. Help us understand a little bit more about what that means. Right. So, um, So if we think about some of the natural variability in the climate system that can influence tropical cyclones, um, at least here for uh, for us thinking about the Atlantic, uh, usually that is ocean temperatures in both the tropical Atlantic and the tropical Pacific. Uh, Those ocean temperatures can influence the conditions that are favorable for tropical cyclones. Uh, So if we think about the types of ocean and atmospheric conditions that tropical cyclones need to form and uh, intensify, uh, we would be thinking about warm ocean temperatures. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those tend to provide the energy needed for a tropical cyclone. And another thing that's favorable for tropical cyclones is weak vertical wind shear. When we think about vertical wind shear, that's essentially the difference in the wind speed or direction uh, between the lower parts of the atmosphere and the upper parts of the atmosphere. So the weaker the vertical wind shear, the better the conditions are for tropical cyclones because it allows the um, convection or or thunderstorms associated with tropical cyclones to organize. And tell us about your latest research. Yeah, so so we wanted to investigate um, how tropical cyclones may change in the future. Uh, So this is a study um, that was done by lead author Anna Sina, Uh, who is a postdoctoral researcher uh, here at Iowa State University. And it was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Uh, And so there's been quite a bit of research done on trying to understand how future climate change may influence tropical cyclones. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is that there's a lack of consensus on how um, future climate change may influence the number of tropical cyclones. 
And most studies have focused on future changes in the average number of tropical cyclones. Um, but here in our study, we focused on how future changes are specifically uh, going to influence active or inactive Atlantic hurricane seasons. Uh, and the reason for that is that these are the seasons that tend to cause the greatest societal impacts or give us a break from impacts. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what, what, what was your conclusion in this latest research? Yeah, so, um, so we investigated how um, the different types of ocean conditions that typically produce uh, active or inactive Atlantic hurricane seasons. Uh, so if we're thinking about active, that's going to be warm ocean temperatures in the northern tropical Atlantic and cool ocean temperatures in the tropical Pacific, um, often called La Nina. Um, and then uh, we sort of uh, ran uh, climate model simulations with um, a model called the Energy Exascale Earth System Model, or E3SM. Uh, this is a climate model that is supported by the Department of Energy. And we did this for both the recent historical climate as well as the future climate at the end of this century. And we found, uh, very interestingly, that the number of Atlantic tropical cyclones was projected to increase by about two-thirds in the future climate during the active Atlantic hurricane seasons. Uh, on top of that, we also found an increase in the tropical cyclone intensity in the future. Uh, so if we think about these results combined, that indicates that tropical cyclone impacts uh, during the already active hurricane seasons may be exacerbated in the future by climate change. Uh, we also investigated how the inactive hurricane seasons could change. Uh, so those are seasons uh, that are typically driven by cool ocean temperatures in the tropical Atlantic and warm ocean temperatures in the tropical Pacific, often called El Nino. Um, and we found that the number of Atlantic tropical cyclones also increased in that case, um, not quite by as much, about one-third of an increase. Um, but this is also very important because this tells us that the conditions that usually help reduce Atlantic tropical cyclone number may become less effective at doing so in the future. Uh, so this means that coastal and island regions in the Atlantic may receive less of a break from tropical cyclone impacts. Mm. So like uh, let's, uh, a region that's often impacted the coast of Florida, Atlantic coast, or the outer banks of uh, the Carolinas, for instance, those are the places you're referring to that may be most impacted by the findings of this study? Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, the coastal and island regions especially, um, although, you know, tropical cyclones can also make their way inland. Uh, so sometimes, you know, they can even affect, um, you know, areas where, where we live out here in the Midwest. So at the outset, I mentioned that NOAA had its hurricane season prediction for this year, the season just starting here in June, going through the end of November. They said near normal, and I guess near normal in very basic terms, at least 12 named storms, five to nine hurricanes, one to four major hurricanes. So the implications of your studies are that there would be in the future a new near normal with a greater number of storms and more intense storms. This is possible, yes. And, um, and our study also indicates that it's very important to consider how 
um, the different factors can combine to influence Atlantic hurricane seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are many different factors to consider, um, but the two main ones tend to be the ocean temperatures in the northern uh, tropical Atlantic as well as the tropical Pacific. Uh, so what's really interesting about this year's hurricane season um, is that the predictions uh, for the ocean are calling for um, ocean temperatures that are essentially competing or, or kind of counteracting in their influence on Atlantic hurricanes. So on the one hand, uh, we are expected to see record warm ocean temperatures in the tropical Atlantic, and we know mm -hmm. that this is favorable for hurricanes. Um, and then on the other hand, that is combined, or at least forecasted, to combine with um, an El Nino, which again, that's warm temperatures in the eastern central tropical Pacific, and we know that those are unfavorable for hurricanes. Uh, so some of our other research has used observations as well as climate model simulations to find that when these two influences are occurring jointly, um, they do tend to counteract and usually lead to a near average Atlantic hurricane season. Mm. And, okay. Um, you talked about modeling, and I'm always interested in the in modeling, and I imagine these must be some of the most complex models that computers can be programmed for. So, so tell us, in layman's terms, what what is a model in this case? What are all the inputs? Uh, how many factors are being traced, and, and what does a model do? That's a great question. Uh, a numerical model for the climate system uh, will essentially take the uh, different equations for the physics that govern the atmosphere as well as the ocean. Um, and it will code them up using computer code. Um, and then we use supercomputers that can solve these equations um, for you know, many variables in, in the atmosphere, the ocean. Um, some models even include uh, the, the land component and the cryosphere. Um, and these models are integrated over um, usually the, the entire globe. Uh, so the globe will be split into uh, different what we call grid points. Uh, so each grid point um, in space will have those equations that are integrated forward in time. And uh, one of the things that's a, a bit special about this study um, is that in order to simulate tropical cyclones, um, since they are... Um, you know, relatively kind of a medium scale to small scale feature in the atmosphere, we need to use what is called high resolution. So essentially what that means is the spacing between the grid points and the climate model uh, needs to be relatively close together in order to even represent something that looks like a tropical cyclone. Uh, so in this case, you know, that requires, um, you know, even more supercomputing power than maybe some of the... Um, uh, kind of typical simulations. Uh, and so that's something that was enabled by uh, some of the great supercomputing resources supported by Department of Energy. Hmm. Fascinating and, and terribly complex. I'm getting a, 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 an inkling of what you're talking about here, but <laughs> it, it's fascinating. I wonder, well, with the five minutes we have left, I wanted to make sure that we got into your, um, what inspired you to go into this field? Uh, you didn't grow up in the Midwest, I understand. That's right. I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, and so I experienced Hurricane Bob. Uh, and, you know, out in Massachusetts, we don't get very many hurricanes. Uh, so for me, you know, growing up as a kid, 
um, you know, I just, I found it to be very exciting. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, uh, you know, we got a lot of, of snowstorms. Um, and so, you know, as a kid, I, I would watch um, the local news. And what was really nice is that um, one of the broadcast meteorologists had, um, you know, asked people to serve as, uh, you know, kind of volunteer weather watchers um, and call in uh, the local snowfall totals. Mm. Uh, so often after the, the snowstorms, I would go out with my yardstick and, uh, you know, measure the snow and call it in. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was always just interested in uh, essentially any kind of weather. Uh-huh. And, and did you, were you ever inspired, say, uh, let, let's be a storm chaser, for instance? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, yeah, growing up, uh, we didn't have that much to chase um, out in Massachusetts. Um, but I will say, you know, it's it's uh, kind of amazing some of the, the work that people do out here in the Midwest, um, you know, chasing uh, chasing tornadoes. I myself have, have yet to see one. Okay. But you, you, how long have you been here in the Midwest? Three years. My my welcome wagon was the um, the derecho in August of 2020. So I, I got a little bit of a taste of what the weather <laughs> holds for us out here in the Midwest. Yeah. What is the difference? Obviously, in, in size, the difference. But what is going on in terms of the physics of weather between a tornado and a hurricane, a cyclone? Yeah. So uh, so for tornadoes, um, you know, those are much, much smaller scale features um, than mm. a hurricane. Um, and I will say, you know, in terms of, of forecasting, um, you know, we typically get a much better lead time for tropical cyclones. Um, you know, we can even sometimes track the, the storms as they're developing um, and kind of shedding off the coast of West Africa. Um, and then some of them, not all of them, actually um, cross the entire Atlantic before potentially making landfall um, somewhere in, in the Atlantic coast. Um, whereas for tornadoes, uh, you know, the, the lead time there in terms of forecasting, it's, um, you know, it's much shorter, so it, it does make it uh, quite a bit more challenging. Yeah, right. Nobody flies an airplane through the eye of a tornado. That's right. With instruments. <laughs> <laughs> what is next for you in terms of research? Yeah, so one thing that I'm really interested in um, is how the uh, tropical cyclones can actually interact with the ocean. Uh, so in the study that we've been talking about, um, in that case, we were focused primarily on how the ocean can influence tropical cyclones. Um, but if we think about, you know, what's happening in, in real life when a tropical cyclone forms, um, the wind field from that tropical cyclone uh, can actually induce mixing of the upper ocean as long as it's you know occurring over the ocean. Uh, and if we think about what that does to the ocean, um, so typically the, uh, the ocean has warmer temperatures towards the top uh, or the surface, um, and then as you go down towards depth, the ocean temperatures cool. Uh, so if we think about the influence of a hurricane on the ocean, that wind that mixes the ocean waters will typically bring up cooler uh, ocean temperatures from the subsurface up towards the surface. And like I had mentioned earlier, uh, typically warmer ocean temperatures are more favorable for hurricanes. Uh, and so since you know, we typically see this cooling, which is often called a cold wake in the ocean temperatures, 
that can actually feed back on the tropical cyclone. And so usually that will work to weaken a tropical cyclone. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's a lot of complexity at play here. So, you know, things like um, not just the, the wind uh, field or the, the strength of the winds from the tropical cyclone, um, but how fast it's actually moving along in space, um, as well as the structure of the upper ocean temperatures. So, you know, do they, um, is, does there tend to be a lot of warm water in the upper ocean, um, or does that ocean temperature profile, you know, tend to cool quickly um, in the upper ocean region? Uh, so kind of just trying to figure out, you know, what all of these potential changes in the upper ocean temperature structure may mean as we're thinking about how future tropical cyclone intensity and precipitation could change. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to having you share uh, more research uh, in the future. Christina Patricola, uh, Iowa State University Assistant Professor of Geological and Atmospheric Sciences and affiliate of the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in California. Thanks for coming into the studio, Christina. Thank you again so much for having me. And that's it for today. Our program today produced by Maddie Willis, Caitlin Troutman, and Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man